I'll be speaking about mindfulness, Buddhism, and modern psychology. What does this turn to mindfulness that we see all around us at the moment tell us about our societies and cultures at this moment in history? The rise of a so-called mindfulness movement is a social phenomenon of our times. And yet this movement has largely been ignored by sociologists and social scientists. But when we look at some of the new social science and humanities research that's happening on mindfulness as a movement at the moment, this suggests that mindfulness might be more than simply a secular self-help technique that you might see in a magazine. Um, I'll speak for about 50 minutes, 55 minutes or so, and then we'll take about a five-minute comfort break, as they call it in the States. And then we'll come back and we'll have a discussion for half an hour or so, depending on what questions you have. So I really encourage you to think up questions. I have a lot of questions that I'll be posing, and you may want to come up with some answers to those as you see it. But also, I'm happy to respond to questions that you may have. So to, do make a note of those and, and hold on to them um, until the question time. Bit of feedback. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Yeah. So in terms of an overview, what I'll be speaking about uh, today, I'll speak about how mindfulness has arguably become a globalized movement. I'll be mostly speaking about the situation in the United Kingdom, which is somewhat distinctive when you look globally. Um, but I'll be speaking about mindfulness as a movement. There is evidence in psychology uh, that so-called mindfulness-based programs, um, eight-week courses that some of you may well be familiar with, uh, are therapeutic interventions. And much of the research is um, a study of the therapeutic efficacy and effectiveness of mindfulness. Um, and I'll speak about that. But critics have increasingly been arguing that mindfulness is what they call a neoliberal technology of the self. So I'll explain a bit about what this means, uh, neoliberalism and um, the idea of a technology of the self. And there's also big debates happening in the humanities and social sciences about the extent to which mindfulness is secular or religious. So I'll speak about those debates. And I'll be arguing, and I'll be interested to see what you all think about this, that the rise of a mindfulness movement actually may signal broad shifts toward what scholars call a post-secular um, late modernity, which is a complex um, advancement of uh, our secular age. So that's where we'll, we'll end up, hopefully. Let's see how it goes. So the mindfulness movement, unless you've been asleep for the last 10 years, <laughs> um, you will have noticed that mindfulness um, is a movement now. It's an Anglo-American invention with Asian roots and a transnational reach, as Jeff Wilson 
shows in his book Mindful America, which was one, one of my recommended readings for this class. The subtitle, in case you can't read it, is The Mutual Transformation of Buddhist Meditation and American Culture. Over two million adult Americans report using mindfulness meditation for health purposes. And since 2010, over 3,000 scientific articles have been published that claim mindfulness is a therapeutic and useful intervention. And I'll show you a graph to sh show that I'm not just making this up um, in a moment. Uh, what illustrates this movement in the States as well is a book by Congressman Tim Ryan. He's a Democratic congressman on Capitol Hill in the United States in Washington. And he wrote a book a few years ago called A Mindful Nation. And the subtitle is How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. And it has a forward by John Kabat-Zinn, who I'll introduce you to in a moment. Not, not in person, I, um, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll show his photo. Uh, um, and in the UK since 2012, the Westminster government has hosted a mindfulness all-party parliamentary group. Just out of interest, who's heard of this mindfulness all-party parliamentary group? Can you pop your hand up? So not that many of you, actually, maybe 20% or so. Um, so now, today, almost 200 MPs and 500 Westminster staff have done a course in mindfulness, which is interesting in itself, whatever you think about that. Um, and there is a network of over 40 politicians worldwide who are all practicing mindfulness. And this uh, mindfulness initiative that created this Mindful Nation UK report, which you can go online and, and read all about this report. Uh, they've been lobbying Parliament to um, uh, fund the public provision of mindfulness across different sectors, um, healthcare, criminal justice, education and workplaces, public sector workplaces especially. So mindfulness, according to William Davies, has become a part of our mainstream and increasingly global therapeutic culture, or what he calls the happiness industry. And the subtitle of his book is How the Government and Big Business Sold as Wellbeing, uh, where mindfulness is employed to enhance our well-being. So within the popular um, narrative, the popular story about mindfulness, um, the story goes that mindfulness comprises ancient perennial wisdom that's been translated for modern times and is now proven by neuroscience. So here's that graph I promised I would show you a second ago, which shows the number of scientific articles per year published on mindfulness. Uh, and I mentioned since 2010, there's over 3,000 articles. It does look like it might have peaked uh, last year at 692. <laughs> uh, it could be that maybe uh, it's reached the, the limit, or it, it could just be that they got to the top of the graph um, <laughs> there and um, it doesn't go any further. Um, so the story goes that this is a therapeutic technique that's been recontextualized from its originally religious background. Uh, the story goes, mindfulness was invented by John Kabat-Zinn. Here's the photo I said I would show. Uh, who was trained as um, a molecular biologist in the United States and started his stress reduction clinic 
at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in 1979. He later developed something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR. Can you put your hand up if you've ever heard of MBSR or mindfulness-based stress reduction, eight-week courses? More people, maybe 50% of people. Yeah. In the 1990s, um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was developed by uh, Mark Williams, John Teasdale, and Zindel Siegel, who are clinical psychologists working on depression. And mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, or MBCT, um, was developed for the treatment of relapsing depression, and now is available in some parts of the UK on the NHS, although it's very patchy, the kind of uptake. Can you put your hand up if you've heard of MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy? More people, maybe 70%, yeah. That makes sense. It's a kind of British invention. This is really, the, all those seagulls in um, Canada, Williams and Teasdale were British, uh, are British um, clinical psychologists and innovated MBCT in the 1990s. So the story goes that along with possessing the power to release people from their distress, the practice of mindfulness is also promoted as a way of enhancing our mental health, our wellness, and flourishing. Proponents of mindfulness tend to say that to change the world, we need to change ourselves, and that we all need to learn how to be more awake, aware, and attentive to the present moment, one mindful individual at a time, and this will change the world. To change ourselves, however, we need to change our brains. <laughs> This is the common refrain, uh, by regularly paying attention with mindfulness to the present moment. Um, paying attention in the present moment, on purpose, intentionally. Um, now this is especially the case within our digital worlds, in which our attentions, as I'm sure you've noticed, are increasingly being captured by internet technology companies. <laughs> Companies that, in turn, then sell us back apps in mindfulness <laughs> uh, to train us to be more attentive, <laughs> uh, such as Headspace. H hands up if you've heard of Headspace. Wow, a lot more people than MBCT. Very interesting. Maybe 90% of you had heard of Headspace. It's probably one of the largest, most significant ways in which meditation and mindfulness is being distributed, not just in the UK, but globally now. It has millions of users, of which some of you may well be one. Um, so the story goes is that we can take back control of our evolutionary heritage, especially controlling our reptilian brain, or our inner lizard, as I heard uh, one neuroscientist <laughs> describe it. Um, and according to this idea, you know, we haven't really grown much more than being scared of, you know, lions on the savannah. You know, we're all kind of um, fight, flight and freeze and so on. But mindfulness can help us to adapt to stressful modern living because we generally aren't living in jungles and so on. It's said that the techniques and skills of mindfulness that might save us are applicable to anyone, anywhere. And the essence of mindfulness is universal like capacities for paying attention and con consciousness, being awake and being aware. Now, while for many people, mindfulness is simply a useful self-help technique to help them cope with modern living, and you maybe go on headspace when you're a bit stressed, 
Um, and just the latest product of the global self-help industry, and it's very easy to make fun of in that sense, for those who promote it most vigorously, mindfulness represents much, much more than this. Indeed, for its most vocal advocates, mindfulness potentially moves us beyond materialistic and consumer concerns of business and industry. Mindfulness represents a way of living and being in this world, and maybe our best hopes for saving humanity from the worst ravages of capitalism. I kid you not, this is how mindfulness teachers speak. Rescuing the planet from continued war, injustice, and imminent environmental collapse. So corporate evangelists like Chade Meng Tan, who was, he doesn't work there anymore, but he was Google's um, uh, happy, happy fellow, happy good fellow, um, that was his job title, um, jolly good fellow, sorry, uh, wrote a book called uh, Search Inside Yourself. And he promotes mindfulness as a universal panacea for world peace. So the subtitle of his book is The Unexpected Path to Achieving Success, Happiness and World Peace. Um, so the principal advocates of mindfulness in this popular story place their hopes in mindfulness as a way of securing the future of human civilization. And the mindfulness movement as a whole tends to be represented as a bottom-up grassroots social movement initiated by workers, citizens, and especially children, especially school children, uh, to campaign for better provision of mindfulness to improve their mental health in the light of dystopic pr predictions by the World Health Organization about uh, increases in depression um, by 2020. So, so far, according to the popular story of mindfulness, so secular, it would seem. Um, now, predictably, <laughs> Uh, given all of this evangelical uh, promotion <laughs> of mindfulness, that has been something of a backlash um, or, or a critical debate. So recent implementations of mindfulness, especially in workplaces and educa educational settings, have prompted much controversy and debate. And hands up if, you've work, if you work in a workplace or, an or you study in an educational setting and you've heard about mindfulness in that context. Like your boss says, oh, we should do some mindfulness. Yeah, maybe 10, 20% of you. As mindfulness starts to influence government policy on mental health and education, as well as corporate well-being programs and strategies uh, being developed uh, to de-stress as employees, Debate about the politics of mindfulness has become heated, um, ironically. Uh, uh, and to date, academic and popular debate about mindfulness has been characterised po by polemics, starkly polarised between proponents, like we just saw, the kind of corporate evangelists and so on, and critics of mindfulness. Uh, so here's an example of a critic. I think, I think this was in The Telegraph. Mindfulness backlash. Could meditation be bad for your health? Uh, a cure-all for everything from stress to anger or a load of marketing hype that could be making you more anxious? <laughs> oh dear. Anna Hart gets to grips with the growing mindfulness backlash. And there's another one in The Guardian that says, is mindfulness making us ill? <laughs> yeah. 
So um, debates have revolved, especially not only around the health and medical aspects of mindfulness, but around the ethical, social and political aspects of mindfulness in the modern world. Critics argue mindfulness has been oversold. <laughs> uh, mindfulness, according to critics, is being presented as a neoliberal technology of the self which medicalizes, psychologizes, and individualizes well-being and suffering as being the sole responsibilities of the autonomous individual. The basic idea of mindfulness seems to, to be that we can just choose whether or not we're well or ill, and then practice meditation accordingly. So this is known as the Muck Mindfulness Critique. <laughs> you can see Ronald McDonald Buddha version <laughs> laughing there. Um, this suggests mindfulness has been co-opted as part of corporate capitalism as a tool for enhancing democratic individualism, making us all more efficient, productive, whilst at the same time pulling welfare provision out of uh, democratic uh, nations. According to one critic, Mindfulness in the marketplace is the triumph of narcissism. <laughs> the triumph of narcissism. We're all told we have to look inward to find truth and to find health. The triumph of narcissism. And according to the critics, and again these are very polar debates, the so-called mindfulness movement, or some advocates call it a revolution, overall is argued to be a top-down, not bottom-up, elite-led, not grassroots, especially private business-led promotion of trickle-down mindfulness for the masses. <laughs> so all the corporate CEOs practice mindfulness and then they, you know, distribute the apps throughout the world and everyone then gets a bit of the mindfulness but not the proper stuff and it's trickle-down. Trickle and the critics say that mindfulness is a white, predominantly middle-class privilege marketed predominantly to women to take care of themselves and thereby distract attention from systemic inequalities, <laughs> such as patriarchy <laughs> and horrible things like that. So if you go to any bookstore now, do go and look at the aisle that shows you the well-being stuff and look at who is being marketed the mindfulness. It's generally not men, although I did hear that there was some plans to create a, a mindfulness magazine for men. Uh, most of the, the mindfulness for men is, predict is, is marketed to a corporate business person in a suit. Uh, whereas actually you see many of these magazines like Teen Breeze for a very particular kind of teenager um, and the Mindful Revolution and, and Science of Meditation in Time magazine. So do look at WH Smith's and so on. I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. You can find all these magazines. But so far, still so secular sounding, actually. Notwithstanding all of the critiques, it still sounds like this is a secular thing that's being critiqued in, in this very polar, polar way. So actually this general argument about mindfulness has been made for probably the last 60 or 70 years against several other therapeutic cultures too, such as 
uh, psychoanalysis. So Philip Reif wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Uses of Faith After Freud. Uh, also, the argument has been made very similarly against humanistic forms of psychotherapy, such as in Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism, American Life in an Age of Diminishing Expectations, and also counselling and counselling discourse, as Frank Ferretti critiques in his book, A Therapy Culture, Cultivating Vulnerability in an Uncertain Age. So, the argument against mindfulness, in a way, is part of that broader critique of therapeutic culture. It encourages us to look within. It's depoliticized. It's not about addressing social conditions and social structures, but becoming more... Yes, <laughs> I need that soundtrack to every lecture I do. <laughs> it's quite suitable for this slide, actually. Um, it's kind of badass crit critics coming in saying... Um, and the critics come from a variety of political and theoretical persuasions from both the, the left and also to quite conservative critics like uh, Philip Reif. Uh, that, you know, the, the therapeutic is about the decline of traditional authority and traditional religion um, in replacement for a more individualized culture. Okay, so we've had the proponents and we've had the critics. Uh, the popular story of mindfulness I told earlier suggests mindfulness is something secular and universal. But critics and scholars have shown how certain histories of mindfulness are often left hidden in the popular story. Historians and scholars of Buddhism have shown how mindfulness has been on a long and unexpected journey to get where it is now. Since at least the late 19th century, people of Anglo-American and Nordic countries have adopted Asian mind-body practices and training regimes as therapeutic ways of living with industrial capitalism. The turn to mindfulness in that sense is not entirely new, but resembles similar so-called Eastern turns, along with yoga, and also transcendental meditation, made famous by the Beatles, along with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, founder of transcendental meditation. Mindfulness, or Buddhist sati, insight meditation and vipassana, illustrates this broad eastward journeys trend. Mindfulness has traveled from monastery to retreat center, into the psychological laboratory, here's a monk in an fMRI machine, <laughs> and beyond. And researchers have charted this interesting movement of mindfulness with articles like From the Bodhi Tree to the Analyst's Couch, then into the MRI scanner. <laughs> there it is. There's the mindfulness going in. Um, from retreat center to clinic to boardroom. And between Buddhism and science, between mind and body. It sounds like meditation and mindfulness have been turned into secular practices. But things are not quite so straightforward, these scholars say. Scholars of religion have called the trajectory of mindfulness a product of Buddhist modernism. 
And this book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism by David McMahon, illustrates this really well. And it links to the title of the talk I was given to speak about, you know, the idea of Buddhism as being an ancient thing versus psychology, which is supposed to be a modern thing, is too simple. Because actually, even before psychology gets invented as an academic modern discipline in the late part of the 19th century, Buddhism has already, many parts of Buddhism, have already been transformed in a way that's commensurate with modernity and with psychology. I want to say a bit more about this Buddhist modernism now. So according to this uh, story that the, the critics and the cultural um, historians are telling, some of the roots of this mindfulness movement and the mindfulness-based therapies that are popular now in the West are actually mostly around 100 years old and can be found in Southeast Asia. And I think this is a very important point that often gets missed out of the popular story where you have a kind of modern science that's the now and then you've got a 2,500-year-old Buddhist tradition that's being brought together. And this work shows actually that the, the age of some of these practices is maybe not quite as ancient as we might think. Um, so the sources could be found maybe around 100 years old and can be found in Southeast Asia. The mindfulness movement is dependent crucially upon modernized forms of Buddhism especially the mass lay meditation movements of Southeast Asia, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Burma or Myanmar, and Vietnam. So figures such as the Mahasi Sayadaw, who sat sternly there at the back behind a row of um, uh, American uh, Jewish um, Buddhist teachers in the 1970s. And also S.N. Goenka, founder of Vipassana, um, courses um, uh, there, um, both from Burma. Also Thich Nhat Hanh, who sat there next to Martin Luther King, who nominated him for a, um, a Peace Prize um, in the 1970s um, of Vietnam, uh, sorry, in the 1960s. Um, they all adapted Buddhist practices in response to colonial encounters, especially British colonialism. Uh, with Anglo-American missionaries, Orientalists, and Buddhologists. It's kind of Victorian activity, the Buddhologists. And the counterculture explorers of the 1960s, um, such as Ram Dass, who used to be called Timothy Albert, he got fired from Harvard for taking LSD and telling his students they should be taking it to do experiments. He changed his name to Ram Dass, and there he is sat with Chogyam Trungpa, a key... Um, a figure who brought Tibetan Buddhism over to the West and to America in the 1960s. So they went in search, these explorers of wisdom in Hindu and Buddhist societies, and they returned to co-create the humanistic psychologies of the human growth and potential movements in the 70s, um, with key figures like Carl Rogers, founder of Person-Centered Counseling, and Abraham Maslow, who was a key developer of humanistic and transpersonal psychology. So the humanistic emphasis on authenticity 
emotional expression and self-realization was a critique of 1950s behaviorism. And behaviorism generally treated us as robots. Uh, psychotherapists advocated more than just adjusting the human being to the society, which behaviorists understood as a neurotic machine. Humanistic psychologists wanted to rehumanize the person, and there was a massive expansion of therapies in the 1960s to the 1970s, not just for those in distress, but for so-called normal people to improve our health, intimacy, personal development, and relationships. Now, whilst cognitive behavioral therapies dominated in the 1980s, humanistic psychology came back and it came to influence what is referred to as positive psychology from the 1990s, and also the subsequent measurement of national happiness and well-being by happiness economists like Lord Richard Layard, who's there in the middle uh, opposite the Dalai Lama. Um, Layard was New Labour's happiness czar. <laughs> he was behind the development of the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies scheme in the 1990s, through which CBT was rolled out en masse. And MBCT really rides the wave of CBT um, in the 1990s and 2000s. So as well as being influenced by all of these threads, mindfulness is also influenced by the self-spirituality of the New Age movement, where to find truth, you look within, and you, you try to find your authentic self by looking within. So when we look at these hidden histories, which in some respects have been lost in translation, because especially mindfulness teachers don't really want to think about this stuff very much, we could say, well, is mindfulness so secular as we in initially thought? I don't think it is. I think this challenges the idea that mindfulness is just a purely secular field. So there's a big debate, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the humanities around whether mindfulness is secular or Buddhist. And this was the, f the photo I used to illustrate this. Here's Matthew Ricard, who you saw earlier going into the fMRI machine. He's a French-born Tibetan monk. He was called by Time magazine the happiest man in the world because of his results in the fMRI machine. And there he is at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, a few years ago, teaching mindfulness to the global leaders, the elites of the world, with the American film actress Goldie Hawn. <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> celebrity, celebrity mindfulness. So scholars are asking very interesting questions that don't often get spoken about in public settings like this. One uh, person, Jeff Wilson, who wrote the book Mindful America, asks, does the so-called mindfulness movement signal the triumph of Buddhism in a non-Buddhist culture? Is this a new form of Buddhism? Or is it the death knell of Buddhism? <laughs> um, because it doesn't involve monastic communities and monks and nuns and so on and, and so forth. Another um, scholar asks, is mindfulness-based stress reduction a new Buddhist lineage or a degenerate corruption of original Buddhism? Uh, other scholars ask, are mindfulness-based therapies promoting a so-called Trojan horse? I heard it called the other day a Trojan mole. <laughs> I quite like the Trojan mole. This kind of cute, cute version. Um, stealth, a stealth Buddhism or crypto Buddhism. 
a secular religion being taught in public civil institutions, especially in schools. In the United States, there's some legal battles over whether mindfulness should be taught in schools in a similar way in which um, some argue yoga should not be taught because um, it actually has some religious and spiritual uh, foundation. Uh, yeah, same in the UK. Thank you. And then this one, which is a little bit condensed and it's a bit um, complex, but I think this is a key question. Helderman asks, is the translating religion approach of therapeutic mindfulness practices, like kind of recontextualizing mindfulness from the religious to the secular, is it a case of capitalistic secularization, like we saw with muck mindfulness, like Ronald McDonald selling us mindfulness along with our Happy Meal? <laughs> um, or is it a re-enchanting subversion of secular spheres? And it's that latter point, in a re-enchanting subversion of secular spheres, that I think that's what's going on most with the mindfulness movement. And we'll, we'll move toward that now. So mindfulness can now be found in diverse settings. If you haven't already noticed, you will from now on after this lecture. You won't be able to miss it. Uh, from primary schools to hospital wards, corporate boardrooms to prison cells, national parliaments to protest rallies. To what extent, though, is the mindfulness that's being taught in each of these diverse settings the same mindfulness? And how likely is it that the purpose of practicing mindfulness is the same in each setting? How likely is it that the outcome will be identical? While the world of mindfulness is composed of diverse fields, social studies of mindfulness tend to be of isolated sectors. They tend to look separately at mental health, education, corporate business, rather than looking at the field as a whole and figuring out what we think is going on moving as it has done across diverse spaces and places, from clinic to classroom, scientific laboratory to church, stock trading floor. I think this is my favorite book, Trade Mindfully. <laughs> Achieve your optimum trading performance with mindfulness and cutting edge psychology. And you always know it's an interesting book when it has the person's um, qualifications on the front. Gary Dayton, PsyD. <laughs> I don't know what side he is. <laughs> um, uh, stock trading floor to colouring book. You'll have seen the colouring books um, on mindfulness. Birthday card. I got sent a mindfulness birthday card, which sends you good wishes of mindfulness. And you open it up and it says, breathe. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> it's really, really handy. Um, uh, from birthday cards to airports. If you want to find mindfulness, airports are a guaranteed place to find them. In the bookshop, lots of mindfulness there. And on the plane, you can often have guided meditation exercises to de-stress while you're cramped <laughs> in your tiny, <laughs> tiny seat. Um, uh, from trade show, and I'll speak about trade shows in a while, to high street well-being centers. There's one actually by Victoria Tra uh, Coach Station, if you've seen it, it's called ReMind and you walk past it, it's a therapy center with mindfulness. Um, from mobile phone app that we looked at earlier, Headspace, to university mission statements. Some universities now are trying to be mindful universities. I could, could do with a bit of that myself. And from corporate boardroom to picket line, as we see here, and protests and demonstrations. It does seem that mindfulness is much more than just a therapeutic self-help technique. 
that seems too narrow a way of understanding mindfulness. And when you look at the teaching of mindfulness, mindfulness teachers, they may well present mindfulness as a secular technique of self-improvement, but they may also present mindfulness as a spiritual or sacred practice and encourage self-transcendence or indeed political activism on the part of their students. And we'll see some examples of this in a while. So recent qualitative research suggests mindfulness may actually pose a challenge to the ideal of self-contained individualism and thereby expose the limits of neoliberalism. Students of mindfulness courses may resist and rework meanings of mindfulness in the context of their lives. And so individualism and narcissism, whilst they're part of the story of mindfulness, they're not the whole story. And we need a broader oversight of what's happening through which we can tell a story about this field which encompasses differences between sectors as well as overarching commonalities of the whole is what I'm arguing. Rather than assuming a priori, and a priori means before you go out and do your study, uh, mindfulness automatically represents an individualizing practice of self-governance. We all have to take responsibility for ourselves and choose uh, rationally what we, what we do. Um, or that people are cultural dopes who swallow the message of neoliberalism whole. Can be kind of patronizing sometimes, some of the critics. We can ask instead, and this is a key question of the research project I'll speak about soon, uh, what kinds of social and cultural worlds are being imagined and made manifest through movements towards mindfulness? So what I'm moving towards here is the idea that mindfulness is not just about the individual self, and it's not just about this turning inward, but it's also about the remaking of society and it's about the remaking of cultures and spaces and places. And that's what I'll move uh, toward. So I hope you've been talking about mindfulness, <laughs> possibly for some of that five, 10 minutes or so. And if you were talking about mindfulness and meditation and Buddhism and all of the issues that I've been raising, please do hold on to those discussions because I'm so curious about what you were saying, but my ability to overhear what you're saying is also, I just couldn't overhear. And, uh, so um, especially also if you were coming up with questions from the most simple actually uh, to what you think are maybe complex ones, uh, please do hold on to those and make a note of them. So I'll speak for about 25, 30 minutes more, and then we'll go into what I see as a kind of seminar, although we've got about 200 people, so uh, it's a bit different to a usual seminar, but we'll see how that goes. Um, and we'll have questions and answers and discussion. So the mass expansion of mindfulness provision during the past 20 years especially, the mindfulness movement, if we're to call it that, and that's why I've put it in kind of single quotes there, is I think we need to question is if there is a mindfulness movement, what kind of movement is it? But if there is one, it really starts to get going in the 1990s, and then it really gains momentum around the financial crisis, so around 2007, 2008, and we could talk about maybe why that might be um, a bit later in the questions. But this mindfulness movement particularly develops in the United States, as I've said, 
um, and then uh, develops in the United Kingdom in a particularly strong way that I'll speak about uh, soon. This has led some commentators to describe uh, a mindfulness movement. So Jeff Wilson, in his book, Mindful America, he uses this term of, of a mindfulness movement. And arguably, a central feature of mindfulness as a movement is its collective modalities of provision. So here you see an image of a mindfulness professional training conference, really for teachers of mindfulness, where there's maybe 200 people uh, sitting in meditation and learning mindfulness from, uh, as I've mentioned before, one of the key patriarchs of the mindfulness field, John Kabat-Zinn, who sat there on his podium. Mark Williams is there, founder of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Um, and there are other key notable figures there as well. Not, not uh, naming any, <laughs> any names, there's me doing my... <laughs> Thankfully, I'm wearing a different shirt uh, today than I was, but um, doing my field work. And, uh, uh, so mindfulness is often taught within group-based contexts. That's one of the distinctive features of the field such as so-called eight-week courses that I've mentioned, eight-week courses in mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, as well as sometimes en masse to hundreds of people in popular public and professional networking conferences. I think the largest one I'd heard about was Eckhart Tolle, who wrote a very popular book called The Power of Now, uh, teaching at Wembley. <laughs> <laughs> So I think this is maybe the biggest mass mindfulness teaching I've heard of. Um, and indeed, the mindfulness practitioner community of teachers, because it's very important to understand that if you teach mindfulness, the expectation is that you also practice it. And it, the practice is a big word in the mindfulness field. You should be practicing mindfulness really all the time. Every mo waking moment of your life becomes an act of, of mindfulness. You know, no pressure. <laughs> um, uh, so this community of teachers, as you see them gathered here together, this was in Bangor, um, in the Centre for Mindfulness Research and Practice, which is actually the largest European training organisation uh, at, at Bangor University. Um, they could be understood as what scholars have called a community of practice, a community of practice, who train to varying degrees as professionals. So if mindfulness, however, is a movement, what kind of movement is it? Does it have any precursors? And also, to what extent does this movement or turn toward mindfulness both draw upon and feed back into wider social, therapeutic, uh, professional, elite, and or grassroots tendencies. What does it actually mean that we have such mass interest in mindfulness and take up in mindfulness? As I mentioned before, a key question for us is how secular or religious or spiritual indeed is this movement or indeed does mindfulness signal broader changes that can't be captured by any of those categories? Which is what? Yeah? Spiritual. Yes, I, yeah, I mentioned that one. <laughs> Secular, religious or spiritual. Thank you. Yeah. And who makes up this movement? Who are the people who are practicing mindfulness, pushing it forward and developing it in the society? And what are the 
scope and boundaries of the movement. Where does mindfulness end? And I'll speak a bit about this later on, and the challenges of this. And broadly, what does this rapid mass development and mainstreaming of mindfulness, especially in the United Kingdom, tell us about the world in which we are living? So these are some of the key questions um, I'll be thinking about now. Now, when you look at social science research, humanities research across many disciplines, from geography through to history, sociology through to uh, social psychology, which is my background, um, we're mostly in the dark when it comes to mindfulness as a social phenomenon. As I showed very early on, so much of the research, the thousands of studies I mentioned, the 3,000 studies since 2010, are largely studies of the psychological and therapeutic efficacy of mindfulness, whether it works as a therapy and what its neural um, and brain-based dynamics are. But the fundamental questions that I've just posed and the disagreements that are happening between the proponents and the critics, um, all of those polemics, they suggest that there's a basic lack of empirical grounding. And empirical here means you know, research, doing the actual research to figure out what's going on. So far, studies on these issues are largely theoretical and cultural analyses, like the books I mentioned. It's people doing large-scale cultural theory and making ideas about what might be happening, but without the rigor and the uh, breadth that I think we need. So I would say we need to draw on interdisciplinary social science and humanities. Mindfulness does not fit in easily within any singular discipline because it traverses over many disciplines uh, to actually start to answer such questions. We need to combine research with what's happening now with historical scholarship of how we've gotten to this moment because we don't just pop up at random in the world, you know, we inherit a history and we're part of a long conversation of history. So, um, it's convenient I've posed all those questions because we're now conducting what we think is the first large-scale social study of the UK mindfulness field as a whole. And we're funded by the Leverhulme Trust, who gave us almost a quarter of a million pounds, which suggests this is important or relevant, uh, to conduct a three-year interdisciplinary social study of the UK mindfulness movement. And we started in October of last year. So we're almost at the end of our first year. So the UK, when you look globally, the UK is considered to be the vanguard world leader in mindfulness provision. Whether or not you knew that, you know it now. Uh, mainly due to its mainstreaming, the degree to which mindfulness has been institutionalized within mainstream institutions, such as um, some schools um, uh, in the NHS um, and uh, other sectors such as workplaces. But there's a key um, oversight concerning basic questions about this movement in the UK. We really don't know what's going on. Who, where, what, why and how. We are therefore studying the people, the places and the practices that make up this mindfulness movement. And we're doing that through a mixture of three methods. So as you probably know, all social science and humanities will involve research methods. Here we're using three main methods. One is an online survey. 
Another is uh, 150 biographical interviews with practitioners and teachers of mindfulness and also what's called ethnographic case studies, and it's those that I'll speak about in a while, where you go into a, an area, you go into a sector, and you learn what it is to be in that sector and what it means. Ethnography comes from anthropology and it's applied to the study of cultures. And we're using those methods to study mindfulness across five key domains, which illustrate this UK mindfulness movement. Health and well-being, education, uh, which also is school, schooling and also uh, workplace, um, private and public sector. Uh, politics, I mentioned the all-party parliamentary group, the Westminster Mindfulness, and the Welsh and Scottish um, uh, devolved um, governments, and uh, religion and religious contexts. So we're studying the leading teachers, the leading trainers and advocates of mindfulness in the UK, who are also its principal practitioners. They're the people that if you were to ask, who are the people who are the mindful people, so-called, although I'd be very careful about that expression, then it would be these people. It's the people training, promoting, practicing. Sometimes their whole life is devoted, as I mentioned before, to the practice of mindfulness. They're the ones leading the movement. What does mindfulness mean in the context of teachers' lives and when understood against those broader social trends and demographics I mentioned before? How institutionalised and professionalised is the UK mindfulness scene? It's a largely unregulated area in, from a kind of psychotherapeutic point of view. What does that mean? How geographically dispersed is mindfulness? Where is it happening? Is it happening in urban areas versus rural and suburban areas? Um, what does mindfulness tell us about the society in which we are living? Especially in terms of the themes I raised before, consumer capitalism, therapeutic cultures, and the secular or religious state of our nation. And I'm hesitant to mention the next one, but I will anyway. Uh, what does it mean to make a mindful nation in times of Brexit? <laughs> I mean, one would hope being mindful would help you escape from Brexit. <laughs> uh, the usual assumption is that when you meditate, it empties your mind, so you don't have to think about anything. Um, but as you've seen by the way I've given the talk, it's not that straightforward. Um, Sadly. <laughs> yeah, let's be mindful of that. So, um. so what I'm going to do now, this is a work in progress. So we're about a year into this three-year project. And I'm now going to zoom in and briefly summarize this work in progress from the four ethnographic field sites that um, we've been studying. So, so far, our kind of first thing that we've been doing is attending public and professional events, quite large-scale ones, and conferences that feature hundreds of people. I just want to come to a few concluding reflections and then we'll go into some uh, questions and answers and discussions. So, mindfulness as a post-secular therapeutic culture. Hopefully, as um, you'll have found, social studies of mindfulness challenge us to think about the world in which we are living. What kind of world are we living in and why is it like that? Psychological and therapeutic cultures such as mindfulness seem to draw upon a wide social and cultural set of threads. 
At the same time, the mindfulness movement works back on the society and culture to transform us in interesting and new ways. Mindfulness seems to be drawing upon and feeding back into multiple social and cultural tendencies over at least the last 30 years, depending on how you draw those boundaries. I want to say that the mindfulness movement is world-producing in the sense that it is involved in the remaking and the production of society. The ideal example of this is mindful nation, the whole idea of a mindful nation. What does that mean? Um, at the same time, the mindfulness movement is also, as well as being world-producing, it's person-producing. It produces new norms and values, and we can talk about how those norms might be gendered and raced and classed, uh, maybe in the discussion. These are new norms and values about what it means to be human, along with new notions of human nature. I talked about whether we're a machine or are we full of organic natural processes. Um, indeed, there might be, uh, it might be the case that the mindfulness movement is not a singular thing. It m might be, rather, that uses of mindfulness are multiple and contradictory. Mindfulness may look, sound, and feel different across different contexts and settings, as I hope I illustrated a bit with those case studies. There might be different purposes and outcomes to mindfulness training depending on its uses and applications. So I would say we should not assume mindfulness is one thing, like secular individualism or narcissism, uh, wherever it goes and before we look and see, or that it has the same effects whenever and wherever it is practiced. It seems mindfulness is comprised of a complex hybridity of elements that are historical, cultural and bodily, involves our, the use of our bodies and involves these dispersed and situated practices like meditation and mindful walking and so on. And all of this resists just a singular interpretation. Indeed, it might arguably be precisely the paradoxes, the tensions, the contradictions, which make mindfulness so potent. It can be all things to all people, it seems. It's incredibly transferable, portable, and adaptable. You find it in all different kinds of unexpected places. And it could be its productive power and potentially curative properties are ensured by the, precisely the fact it does not represent just one singular thing, like individualism or narcissism, but could be a vehicle to capture contradictory tendencies as we make meaning in our lives. Um, so far, it seems, based on our work in progress, um, the mindfulness movement may appear to be much more than just a secular therapeutic technique alone, or indeed a new form of Buddhism, that doesn't seem quite right, but rather may contain all these post-secular threads that I've been discussing. But if mindfulness means all things to all people, uh, as some commentators have suggested, what does mindfulness mean to you? which is the most important thing. So thank you very much. Thank you. Great. So we've got time for questions and discussions. In fact, we have 20 minutes or so, 20 or 25 minutes. 
What I would suggest, and I think how this works best, is if we have five minutes for you to chat with people that are behind you and in front of you about your questions. Um, I've asked this question, what does mindfulness mean to you? And that could be the question that you ask of each other. But I really want to get you, I know it's London, but I really want to get you to chat with someone that you maybe didn't, <laughs> you maybe didn't speak with earlier on. So maybe turn around, say hello, hello, I'm so-and-so, what does mindfulness mean to you? For five minutes, so we'll do that for five minutes and then we'll go into the question. Okay, let's start because I want to give time for questions. So we'll, and especially an encouragement if you've never asked a question in this kind of setting, you could possibly believe you would, then do pop your hand up. But I'll go here and then here. Yeah, go for it. Are they bringing a microphone back? I think they are, yeah. Is there a microphone? Oh, there's one there. Well, you go first and then we'll come to you, yeah. You've got the microphone. All right, so I think a lot of us have heard about the benefits of MRI scans, like improved cortical um, meditation, the MRI scans, but they show like improved cortical thickness, improved, increased stopping flow, um, improved hemisphere symmetry, so on and so on. Um, now, are you implying that such results that we can see in the monks through MRI scans can only be uh, achieved if we live that very strict monistic um, lifestyle? So basically you're talking about this MIP approach to meditation nowadays, like in the Western culture, basically are we not going to achieve those sort of uh, cognitive improvements with this sort of meditation? Do we have to be looking into the different type of meditation that maybe you are more aware of? I think, thank you for that question. I, I, think, um, I think that's probably a question for a different talk that I didn't give, <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm sorry, but um, I'm not a neuroscientist and I feel quite uncomfortable speaking about neuroscience um, because I don't really know very much about it. What I do know from reading the literature on neuroscience and, and uh, hearing neuroscientists talk about, about mindfulness is that the field of neuroscience is about 20 years old in terms of our current understanding of the brain and studi current studies. And so it's very much a work in progress. And so when I talk or hear neuroscience talk, they, they, neuroscientists talk, they really say that there's a lot we don't know. And that actually a lot of the statements that sometimes journalists, but also often neuroscientists themselves, sometimes in public settings, say about meditation and mindfulness. And a lot of promises, I think, are made about meditation and mindfulness based on neuroscience. As I suggested, we kind of look to neuroscientists as the kind of new secular priest to tell us what the truth is. And so I think there's a big difference between the research on neuroscience and the debates that are happening in that field and the public presentation of neuroscience findings. So Richard Davidson, who's a world famous neuroscientist, very recently wrote a paper in Emotion and it's a paper, I've never seen a paper with so many negative points about the research <laughs> listed about where they're at in the research and saying, look, we're really not very far. But then if you see Richard Davidson speak in public, um, actually he makes a lot of promises for meditation and mindfulness based on neuroscience. Now, I know that's not an answer to your question. <laughs> it's more a, a, a kind of encouragement for us to think a bit more critically about neuroscience, given that it has such a big kind of impact on how we understand ourselves at the moment. I mean, what I didn't mention in our talk is that 
a lot of researchers are saying now is that we don't only understand ourselves in psychological terms, but we understand ourselves in neural terms. So you hear these children in the events we've been going to talking about how their amygdala is firing <laughs> and so on, and they're using a kind of neuroscience language. That's very interesting to understand what's going on there and, and what's happening. So I'm sorry, it's, not, it's a non-answer to your question. But we are all <laughs> Yes, thank you, yes. So we'll go here and then we'll go back there and there. Yeah. And there's a mic coming. Thank you for that question. Hi there. So, there were quite a few references to Buddhism, um, but there wasn't a reference to Vedantism, which yeah, yeah. predates it by about 3,500 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it does talk about enlightenment and, um, and, and, and non-duality and, and all of that stuff. But it also um, it, it, it alludes to a, a, like a triad of things that we have to have to, to, to be complete. And one of them is, is static thinking, so that's kind of being present and thinking inwards, being in the moment, which is very much like mindfulness. And that also includes thinking outwards and being, being present outside of ourselves in the moment, in nature, and, and so on and so forth. But it also um, alludes to temporal thinking, so thinking in time, so thinking forwards, having hope goals, um, looking backwards and making peace with, with the past. And then, of course, the, the dynamic creative thinking, where we're bringing forth ideas into the world, uh, problem solving and thinking naturally. And if you put the three of those things together, that is pretty much Vedantism in a box, or a triangle-shaped one. Um, and I was just wondering um, why you didn't bring Vedantism into, into the mix. I guess it's partly as a Hindu tradition, it really informs transcendental meditation much more than it does mindfulness. There are some turns in the mindfulness field towards non-dual kinds of knowledge, and I think, I think Vedanta is becoming more influential and popular, for sure, but I think in the mindfulness field it's a, it's a relatively marginal and not that commonly drawn upon thing, and that would be the main reason. Thank you, thank you. So there's one further back and then there was one further forward. I can't remember who was at the back, but yeah, it was there. Yeah, so we'll go there and then we'll come to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, this morning, Jesse Malinowski was talking about thought suppression. So I wonder about, you know, a lot of mindfulness practitioners, they try and sit in silence and any thoughts that are coming to their heads, they bat it away. So um, given what she was speaking about earlier, so I think that whole idea of thought suppression and batting thoughts away I think is quite unusual within the context of mindfulness meditation teaching. I would say through teaching and research over the last 10 or 15 years that I've done, it's much more common that a teacher of mindfulness will teach you to notice thoughts as they come in and then let them go than batting away, although, yeah, there's certainly, I would say, more concentration meditation practices which are about batting away thoughts in a gentle way. Uh, but I think those concentration traditions are not quite the same as the mindfulness meditations where usually one's encouraged to notice thoughts and then let them go. Yeah. So there's one there, and then we'll go to whoever was next. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What do you think between the relationship between mindfulness and corporate business? 
Yeah, so I think the corporate business thing is probably, along with education, it's probably been the biggest area of debate, I think, in the field as a whole. Um, that's a really big question. Um, I think the, the MOOC mindfulness critics say that the mindfulness movement is largely a top-down, elite-led corporate initiative. And so that's partly why you have the interest in the World Economic Forum in mindfulness. It partly also answers that question which I posed earlier of why does mindfulness interest peak around the financial crisis, 2007, 2008? It's around that period, it seems, where technology companies start to get really interested in mindfulness and they start developing mindfulness apps, mindfulness programs for their employees and also rolling it out to the population at large. And it seems like a big part of the discourse of mindfulness is that to deal with uncertainty and crisis, you're mindful of it. <laughs> and it's a kind of what some researchers have said, a kind of naturalizing of systemic crisis that's being prompted by elites. And then we're encouraged to meditate and be accepting and okay with constant reorganizations of our workplaces. <laughs> And you see this in some quite crass examples of where mindfulness courses are given as a kind of voluntary severance package to employees where you'll say, look, we're firing you, but here's some mindfulness to be okay with it. <laughs> and I give that as a kind of crass example. Um, and I don't want to kind of blanket kind of all of corporate mindfulness with that because, of course, there's also attempts by some very well-meaning teachers to try to reform corporations from within to make them more compassionate and mindful and so on. I must say, as with the neuroscience question, there's very limited studies of this field. There's a lot of <laughs> rhetoric and there's a lot of polemics. There's very little social studies in those sectors and we need much more ethnographic studies to show what actually happens in a workplace when you bring mindfulness in there. <laughs> Because the, the, the story we're sold is that everyone wants mindfulness, but actually when you look into workplace situations and schools, it's very, people are very ambivalent. Some want to do it and they're interested. Some see straight through it like, hey, you're cutting my pay, but you want me to be mindful of it? You know, so I think it's a real mixed bag and I don't think people are just these dupes that go along with it. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think the outcomes were probably quite complex. Um, so thank you. Yeah, it's a really thank nice you. question. Yeah. So come here and then we'll go over there. Yeah, got 10 minutes, that's great. Yeah, thank you. These are great questions. Um, when you work in mindfulness, how do you achieve like, a work-life balance or when you're being mindful, does it always feel like work? <laughs> yeah, so I think, yeah, some of the critics say actually that, and, and this is maybe on the more, one, one side of it, is that actually m the job of being mindful has become part of work. Like, actually, and there's, a, there's an interesting book called Self-Help Inc. by M McGee, and they say actually that, that people who engage in self-help pra practices actually become quite beleaguered and quite kind of exhausted, actually, about how much self-responsibility they have to take <laughs> for the world's problems, you know, on your shoulders. Um, so I think that's part of it. Some, some argue actually mindfulness has been turned into this lifelong practice where you have to take care of yourself, actually, which can be an enormous burden, actually. I mean, anecdotally, we, we haven't done our interviews yet, so I think we're, we're doing these 150 interviews with mindfulness teachers, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see how do they live. I mean, my kind of anecdotal feeling based on being in this field for quite a long time 
is some of the leading mindfulness teachers seem to have increased their capacity for resilience and stress to quite an astonishing dimension, <laughs> such that they can take on more and more and more and more. Um, and that's a challenge. You know, it's like, how, how do you maintain a life in, in, that, in that sense? The other way I would come at this question, which is slightly different to, I think, what you're asking, but I'll say anyway, is that the whole work-life balance discourse, I think, is part of corporate business. It's part of corporate capitalism, you know, and like our universities talk about work-life balance and they give us a mindfulness course. And the assumption is that, yeah, my problems with my work-life balance is not like my workload <laughs> or the conditions of the organization or the fact that university lecturers are overwhelmed with work and very poorly paid, but it's just that I'm not paying attention. <laughs> I'm not choosing and controlling and, and so on and taking good responsibility for myself. So I'd be also wanting to kind of think critically about the whole idea of work-life balance as well. Thank you. So there's one over there, yeah, that guy. And then there was someone else who was over there. And then, Wow, this is really awesome. I really like the questions. I wish my students, sorry to keep saying this, but. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, we'll talk about that another time, yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, you, yeah. you, you posed a question early on about, is, well, is, it, is it a secular or a Buddhist thing? Um, the thought it prompted is, how much are we talking about one thing when we talk about mindfulness as a, as a personal practice? And to what extent it's a different thing in a secular or religious or any other context? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was really the key point of my lecture. And I want to give one example that I didn't talk about here, but is Christian mindfulness. So there's a whole part of the mindfulness field that's called Christian mindfulness, which you can buy just as you can all the other kinds of mindfulness. And that's really fascinating. We haven't really worked on the uh, those field notes yet, but actually in London just a few weeks and months back, there was a Christian mindfulness event. And I'm going to be very interested to see, well, in that context, what does mindfulness look like? Is mindfulness becoming aware of God? Is mindfulness linked to prayer practices um, and so on? That's really fascinating. Now, and what's also interesting is that when you're in the mindfulness field, it took me honestly 10 years to even know that Christian mindfulness existed. <laughs> Partly because the field is, is very distributed, but it's also there's kind of power dynamics and authority relations about who's got the right mindfulness, <laughs> like I mentioned, and who's got the best access to the present moment. <laughs> uh, you know, is it the Buddhists and the Buddhist-influenced people? Is it those doing the clinical psychology, the neuroscience, this is evidence-based? Is it the Christian mindfulness? So I think also there's a lot of dilemmas of authority about yeah, power, actually, about who has access to the present moment. <laughs> That's how I'm thinking about it, like a cultural politics of the present moment, like what's going on. But yeah, there was someone here. Yeah, thank you. That was it. And then we'll go. Hi. Um, you said that you, the project has been located, is it the quarter of a mil? Yes, 214,000 pounds. Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we're funded by the Leverhulme Trust, which is one of these rare funders that actually didn't ask us to give an outcome before we did the research. 
which you'd be surprised, but many of the research councils, they ask basically for what your findings are before you've done the project, <laughs> which sounds bizarre, but if you work in universities, nothing is <laughs> like, uh, surprising now. And so actually they didn't ask us for anything like that. They didn't ask us to do what many research councils ask for a, an impact plan, which shows how we're going to change the world based on what we found. But we haven't found what, what we're, uh, what, what we're going to find. So we don't really know what the outcome will be. I think for mindfulness teachers and those advocates that I've mentioned, what they're interested in about this project is the degree to which mindfulness is geographically located in different areas. They're very interested in the accessibility of mindfulness courses, uh, who gets access to mindfulness, who doesn't, um, where it's happening, um, in order to then argue for public funding. Um, for supporting mindfulness courses. There's a big debate within the field of mindfulness teachers about accessibility, access, diversity, and so on, because many of them are very aware of these problems of it being largely a white middle-class movement, and they want to then diversify. So I think many of them are interested in those outcomes of this project. I think our outcomes of the project as scholars is a much more longer-term one, is that we want to say something about British society in this moment, through the, uh, through the lens of mindfulness. And, and we'll, we will publish a popular, well, not popular book, that would be stretching it too far, uh, a book that I would hope would have a wider readership, and I try to write accessibly, uh, called um, uh, uh, Make The Making of a Mindful Nation, uh, uh, Mapping the Mindfulness Movement. And so I think in that sense, as a social scientist, I, I want to say something in the public domain that helps us think about where we're at now and who we are. So it's a less kind of like instrumental uh, outcome than the other one that we mentioned. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. So we've probably got time for one more question. So I think you were first. Sorry, um, I think you had your hand up while the other person... Yeah, that's it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, there seems to be an inherent incongruence in term mindfulness because the goal seems to be to, to basically just not pay attention to what your mind is cooking up. Sorry, not pay attention. Not pay attention to what your mind is cooking up. And yet, we are very full of mind. Um, okay. As you see what I mean, and how does that relate back to the whole study of mindfulness? Okay, so... I think, I think I would say the opposite to what you've just said. So I think most, most teachers of mindfulness would say that you are paying attention to what's going on in your mind. You are paying attention to your thoughts. You are paying attention to your emotions in your body, especially in your body. And you're becoming aware, more aware of what's going on in your thinking and more aware of your emotions and what's going on in your body. Uh, yeah, that's what they would propose that we're, we're doing when we're being mindful. <laughs> Well, it's a kind of non-doing, but anyway, yeah. Well, thanks so much for all of your questions. I really appreciate your attentiveness. And I'm around during the break. I'll have to clear out of here. But the last thing I just wanted to mention, actually, which if you teach mindfulness or you know a teacher of mindfulness and you're based in the UK, we would love to hear from you. And um, if you are either of those who so teach mindfulness, you know a mindfulness teacher, please uh, pick up one of our flyers, which is down here on the front. And also you could visit our website because we are, um, as I said, doing our online survey. And we very, we'd be very interested to interview you as well. Um, 
so uh, that would be terrific. But anyway, thank you so much for your attention. Thank you.